Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. Animals. They bring us companionship, help to maintain healthy ecosystems, and sometimes they even support us with rehabilitation. But can we honestly say that we've done the same for them? WWF reported that if humans did not inhabit the Earth, the extinction rate for all other creatures could be 10,000 times lower. So why aren't we doing more to protect them? Animals and the ecosystems they live in play an essential role in our fight against climate change. In fact, the United Nations estimates that healthy ecosystems could account for 37% of the carbon reductions needed to limit global temperature rises. But animals aren't only here to keep our flowers pollinated and our pests controlled, they certainly should not be liable for keeping our climate under control as we continue to pump out carbon emissions. No, animals deserve to live in harmony in a world which doesn't poach them for their body parts and to thrive in ecosystems which aren't destroyed or degraded. There's no denying that humans have an obligation to ensure we not only stop our damaging ways, but look to increase wildlife populations and strengthen the habitats they rely on. But with an estimated 8.7 million species of plants and animals in existence on Earth, the question is, where do we start? Beautiful, towering elephants. The entire herd was gunned down. All of them had had their faces hacked apart with axes. They were barely recognisable. We could all feel like there's no hope. But actually, when you find that one small story leads to success. It creates hope that we can win hearts and minds and we can move people from inaction to action. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today we're hearing from the woman who's transforming wildlife conservation in Africa. In this episode, we're in Kenya, Located in East Africa, Kenya encompasses savannah, lakelands, the dramatic Great Rift Valley, and mountain highlands. Rich in biological diversity, the country is home to around 25,000 species of animal, from black rhinos to spotted hyena, and about 7,000 species of plants, including acacia trees, Spanish tamarind fruit, and much more. Kenya's authorities and conservationists work hard to ensure the survival of species in their habitats, big and small, my guest today has certainly played a huge role in doing just that. Hi, I'm Paula Kohumbu. I'm the CEO of Wildlife Direct, which is a Kenyan conservation organization based in Nairobi. And I run uh, the productions of Wildlife Warriors, a TV series that shines a light on African conservation role models. And I also run the Wildlife Warriors Kids program, which is out here in the wild. Paula is one of Africa's best known conservationists now CEO of Wildlife Direct, an organisation which aims to connect people to nature and wildlife, she's dedicated her life to defending Africa's habitats and the species that live there. From leading the global campaign, Hands Off Our Elephants, to inspiring a new generation of wildlife advocates with the Wildlife Warriors programme. Paula's conservation efforts have shifted years of unjust treatment towards nature in Africa, but she still recognises that there's a great deal of work to be done yet. Nature doesn't have a voice of its own. It needs people like us. But there's a lot of fear sometimes, and there's sometimes threats and intimidation, or there's just plain laziness on the part of some people. They just think that, well, Paula will do it, or somebody like Paula should do it. That lack of sense of responsibility to act when you see something is wrong is a big part of the problem. If you saw a child being harmed in the street, you wouldn't stand by and do nothing. So I don't understand why people stand by and do nothing when they see destruction of the environment, which happens all the time. In this episode, Paula joins us from the Wildlife Warriors Field Camp 
located just south of the capital of Kenya, on the edge of Nairobi's National Park. I asked Paula if she could tell me more about this space and why it's important. We are literally in an open field. It's windy because it's quite dry right now. We've had a prolonged drought. The winds have been gusting. We're sitting under a tent, so you can hear the tents flapping a bit. Um, we are literally just a few hundred meters away from the Nairobi National Park. So across from here, I can see the river, the roads, the vegetation, giraffes, um, <laughs> vehicles on safari, tourists going out and looking for lions and rhinos. This is a really, really important, special piece of land. It was gifted to Wildlife Direct just over a year ago for education. It's adjacent to the national park, so it provides a kind of a buffer for the national park. It's only 30 acres, but it's the first children's conservation area in the whole country, I think in the whole continent. So it's literally designed only for children. And this place has never been farmed or grazed or used in any way, unlike some of the surrounding areas, which if you drive around, you'll see they've been deeply quarried. There's uh, habitat degradation, overgrazing, and lots of destruction. So this may seem really simple, Paula, but where did your love for nature come from? Well, I was born and raised here in Nairobi, just south of the city. And I grew up in a very large family where my mother, I think, struggled with us and she would put us outdoors all day long. And so I grew up just connected with nature. My siblings and I would go on these adventures every single day. So I grew up just loving climbing trees, wading through swamps, fishing, swimming in rivers and that kind of thing. As I grew up, though, a lot of this amazing nature that we had in Nairobi started disappearing. My interest in nature was not something that was nurtured by anybody, really. It was not considered a potential future for And it still isn't among young people. It's not considered something that you would actually choose as a career. You choose to be a vet or a doctor or a pharmacist, you know, something professional. But when I finished high school, I knew that I just wanted to do research. I wanted to study nature. I was really, really deeply, deeply interested in it. And that was because I had been on an expedition as a 15-year-old into northern Kenya. And I'd hiked for 30 days in the deserts, climbing mountains, collecting specimens for the National Museums. Felt like a fully grown-up. <laughs> you know, it was a, a very, very powerful experience going out with grown-ups and being treated like a grown-up. And so when I finished my undergrad and I did my master's degree and I studied primates and I went into forests, I went into very remote, isolated places in Kenya. And then for my PhD, I studied elephants. And I realized that it wasn't just research. It is fascinating and it does entertain my curiosity. But most of these animals and places are under threat. And it was very clear to me that I couldn't just entertain my curiosity. I had to do something about it. Going back to basics, what is wildlife conservation and why is it important? First, wildlife is a word that most people think means big, toothy animals with claws and are dangerous. And even here in Kenya, most people think wildlife is the big five, elephants, rhinos, you know, dangerous creatures. Wildlife actually, according to our laws, are all creatures and actually all biodiversity. So even a mosquito is part of wildlife or a bacteria, actually. And wildlife is part of, if you think about our, our life support systems, we depend on water, fresh air, good food. All of these are created by nature and wildlife is part of nature. It's a very, very important part of nature. The more we damage nature, the more we destroy forests, we impact the soils, we impact water and the quality of water. That affects our health, that affects our ability to grow food and quality food and quantity of food required. So conservation is really about protecting the life support systems of this planet. And each country needs to protect enough land area and different types of habitats that exist in those places. So, for example, it would be no good saving only savannas and destroying all our forests because our forests are vital areas of extreme biodiversity. That's where most of our insects are. And those insects are critical for pollination, which is necessary for agriculture. So conservation, for me, it's not just a special field that certain people engage in, like 
architects are busy building buildings or uh, lawyers are in, only work in the courts. Conservation is something that every single person on this planet needs to know about and needs to get engaged in because every single thing we do impacts on the environment around us and it impacts on nature. In your opinion, Paula, how concerned should people be about conservation? Um, I'm very, very concerned about the state of wildlife in Africa because this is the last continent that still has its full array of biodiversity and especially what we call the mega species, the elephants, the rhinos, giraffes, buffaloes, these large animals. But they're declining rapidly because Africa is also developing at the fastest pace that any continent has ever grown at. And so the, the change is happening very, very quickly. Our country, Kenya, is one of the most megadiverse countries on the planet. And you can see it right here. It's windy and dry and dusty because of a drought that is now in the third year. That drought is caused not just by climate change, but it's exacerbated by the destruction of the environment around us. The developments, uh, housing, roads, but also overgrazing by livestock. So there's an imbalance in this ecosystem. This affects all the animals. And most of these species have hardly been studied. And we know that ecosystems like this, this is a savanna. They are dependent on different species. You can't just take out one species and think that everything will be fine. These species, all these different animals, interact with each other and the land and the vegetation at the same time. And so there's a domino effect. When you take out one, there's a knock-on effect on another species and another species and another species. A simple example is the invasion of invasive species. So species that have been brought into Kenya unknowingly or knowingly as garden plants will run riot across landscapes like this when they're degraded and they're not edible to many of our animals, which basically then reduces the biodiversity and the biomass of other animals. So I'm very concerned about what's happening in this continent. I'm very concerned about what's happening in Kenya. There's lack of knowledge, lack of awareness and lack of action to protect, defend and restore environments that are becoming degraded. Paula, conservation might seem quite remote to a lot of people's lives. What is it about your work that allows people to connect with conservation? So wildlife in Africa has always been seen as a very romantic thing. And that's because of the way it's been portrayed in the media for decades. It's always been something of the born free story of foreigners came to Africa, found this amazing wildlife and fell in love with it and had a pet lion. <laughs> and it's all very romantic. And Africans were never part of that story. Or maybe they were part of the story, but in a negative sense, sometimes as the poachers, as the bad guys. Africans have their own stories, which are about the traditional native knowledge of animals, plants and places. Many people have totems in their tribes. For example, some tribes, their totem is elephants, others it's a porcupine. Some people's names, and they're named after wild animals. So there's a very strong and ancient connection between people and nature in Africa that has been largely ignored by the Western media. So one of the reasons why I've gone out of my way to really go wild with creating awareness and being very visible is to revive that sense of African ownership of this space, to inspire others to also take up their place in this space. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be people in England or America or Europe who are going to save this wildlife. It's going to be Africans. If Africans don't care about the wildlife, if they see it as something that was protected only for foreigners, then they will have no interest in it. They're not going to bother. They're not going to do a thing. And we'll lose it. We'll all lose it. And us as Africans will be, the, I guess, the ones who lose the most because we do depend on this, this nature. A lot of people when we do surveys, tell us that wildlife is important for tourism. But actually, the average ordinary person out here does not benefit from tourism at all. Never will. The government gets money from tourism. A few landowners and a few companies make money from tourism, but most ordinary people don't make money from tourism. I would say that we have to change that narrative. We have to revive our traditional value system. So to most Africans, saving wildlife is not about the money. It's about our identity.
So this is a bit of a question about you, Paula. Was there a defining moment which sort of gave you the drive to pursue your life's work in conservation? You know, I've always been interested in nature from a scientific perspective. I'm very curious and I love learning and studying and discovering things. But when I started working on elephants and seeing the destruction of elephants, and it's not just an animal, a lump of meat that gets gunned down. These are individuals with names. You know, there was one particular family of elephants, the QBs from Amboseli. The matriarch's name was Kumquat. And all of the members of her family began with the letter Q. So there was um, Quay and Quintilla, her daughters, and her grandson, Q-Tip, and her granddaughter, um, Kwanzaa. And all of these elephants were famous. They'd been photographed by international photographers. They were such incredible, graceful herd of elephants that you could get very close to. If you go to Amboseli, you, you can experience this. Elephants will walk right up to your car. They will sometimes almost touch the car. And you can see the intelligence in these animals. You can feel that they can sense you. If you wave at them, they will raise their trunk back at you. So there's clearly a relationship going on there. Or there's an interaction and a communication. And when a very famous photographer, whose name is Nick Brandt, took a photograph of the QBs sleeping, you know, standing in the open, and he took a very, he was obviously out of the vehicle, on the ground, taking a very low photograph, these beautiful towering elephants, all of them sleeping with their trunks lying on the ground, but they're standing, but fast asleep. On the next day, the entire herd was gunned down. All of them had had their faces hacked apart with axes. Um, they were barely recognizable. And the only survivor was Kwanzaa. She was about two or three years old. She had no tusks, so the poachers weren't going to waste a bullet on her. So seeing those photographs of Kumquat, Quay, Quintilla, Q-tip, and all of them just slaughtered just for their tusks, which are their two front teeth. Just was so infuriating and upsetting, not just for me, the more I told people about it, and people would just burst into tears because they were no longer just unknown elephants. They were named individuals who had a family. They were sisters, mothers, daughters, sons, uncles. Um, I think... That really moved me that this story and storytelling had the power to move people from being somewhat distantly interested in it, suddenly becoming very, very upset and willing to take action. Um, and that's when I, I realized that we could, we could all feel like it's no good, there's, it's no, there's no hope, I'm not going to bother, I'm not going to try. But actually, when, when you find that one small story leads to success, it creates hope that actually we can create many of these stories. We can actually tell stories about all our life in this way. We can win hearts and minds through storytelling, through creating relatability to the individual animals and the places. And we can move people from inaction to action. And that's not just people who, whose money we need for campaigns, it's government. We can move governments to actually change laws. So you've given us some insight there into what drove you to pursue a career in conservation in the first place, but I'd love to know more about your first job in this space. I understand you worked very closely with Richard Leakey, who I had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago. He was a, he's a, he was a world-renowned Kenyan fossil hunter and conservationist, sort of famous for taking on poachers. He threatened to wipe out Kenya's elephants and rhinos. He founded Wildlife Direct, the Kenyan and US charitable organization in 2006. You're now the chief executive officer of that organization. But what was your first role? So when I first started working with Richard at Wildlife Direct, my job was to create blogs for conservationists all across Africa because he felt that we needed to find a way to bring funds directly to people who are working at the grassroots. That's why it's called Wildlife Direct. And the stories were generally quite good stories but they weren't compelling enough to attract enough money and every organization needed funds what we found is that whenever there was a, a crisis 
people were much more generous. So we moved from just telling stories to campaigning for certain species. We campaigned for lions that were being poisoned as a result of human-lion conflict. And then we moved to elephants. And we were very intentional that we were only going to campaign for one species at a time. And the campaign for elephants was particularly relevant because China and Japan were trying to reopen the ivory trade. And Kenya would be one of the countries that would be harmed the most. But we could see it. We could already see it in the data from all the bloggers that we had, that elephant numbers were being affected, elephants were being poached, not just in Kenya, across Africa, almost in anticipation. The ivory trade is that sensitive. You talk about opening trade and people start killing elephants. So we decided that that would be our major campaign. Since I studied elephants for my PhD, I was an expert. Richard Leakey was the guy who started the first bonfire of ivory that led the whole world to think differently about ivory and the value of ivory. And the campaign, initially, we weren't quite sure how to, how to do it because we were no longer talking about Western, European or American audiences. We were talking about African audiences and Asian audiences. But we needed the African governments to support us first. So we partnered with the media companies and we brought photographs, some of the most, I would say, horrific photographs you could imagine of elephants that have been poached. And we published them in the local newspapers and we wrapped every single newspaper on one day of the week. We wrapped every single newspaper in a banner, which was all about the ivory trade. So nobody could ignore it. All the different newspapers carried the same banner as a part of the campaign. And I remember one news reporter wore <laughs> the wrapping on his head like a hat as a, as a way of saying, I'm part of this campaign. We called it Hands Off Our Elephants. And we started handing out armbands, you know, like morning bands. And news reporters would wear them, all kinds of people. Everybody wanted to be seen as being involved in this campaign. It was the first time in this continent that ordinary people were invited to join a movement to save a species. And it was very, very powerful. In Kenya, the poaching dropped by 85% within just about two or three years. So that was amazing. And the poaching in our country never got to the level that it did get next door. So Tanzania, south of us, had a population of about 120,000 elephants. They lost nearly 85% of their elephants at the same time, whereas we in the end lost, I think, about 5 or 6% of our elephants. So the, the difference was very dramatic. But it was largely because the Kenya government, although initially, and it happened across Africa, initially all governments said, it's an exaggeration. These people are troublemakers. They just don't want us to make money from this ivory. But in Kenya, we've always had a soft spot for elephants. And we were able to persuade the government to look into it, to address the court system, the judiciary, the way that courts were handling cases. The number of rangers were increased by 500 people. They created a special unit only going after ivory poachers. They created new courts at the airport and at the seaport. And they trained special prosecutors. So for the first time, we had 45 special prosecutors whose jobs were only dealing with wildlife crime. And all of those things happening at the same time created a, almost a sense of the whole country was behind this. We had the government. We actually had the president's office behind us. The first lady joined the campaign as the spokesperson. She was phenomenal. The judiciary got behind it. The prosecutors got behind it. The police and the Kenya Wildlife Service were all behind it. But I think the most powerful thing about it all was the media having this massive media push behind us, and then the general public. So we organized an annual march in the streets of Nairobi to demonstrate in support of protection for elephants. And on the, by the time we did the fourth march, which was just before COVID, we had 4,000 people marching with us in the streets of Nairobi. People would come from all corners of the country and even from neighboring countries to join us. And when I asked them, what are they doing? Why did they come? For this march, they said it's the only thing that they could do to show that they are committed to conservation. And do you know why Wildlife Direct was set up in the first place? So Wildlife Direct was created before I joined it. It was Richard Leakey's idea to find a way to enable visitors who come to Africa to make a contribution, make a difference. Because people always said to him that they'd fallen in love with this place, which was so normal. People really 
never want to leave when they come here, but they don't know how they can help. And there isn't any mechanism. There's no, there's no way that you could actually make a difference. So he created Wildlife Direct to enable people to directly contribute to the projects that they care about. And when I joined a few years later, my job was to open it up to many more projects around the continent. And he hired me because of storytelling. I had been working somewhere else for a private company, a cement company actually, and we had rescued a baby hippo. As I was going to say, as one does, but one doesn't. We had rescued a baby hippo that was a victim of the Indian Ocean tsunami. That baby hippo was less than a year old. It was quite tiny. But when we brought it to our center, which was the rehabilitation of limestone quarries, it survived, not because of us, but because it made friends with a giant tortoise. This giant tortoise was about twice the size of the hippo. And so this unusual pair attracted a lot of international attention. And Richard asked me, you know, <laughs> he, kept, he, he would call me and say, tell me again, how many people are reading the blog? So we had created a blog because we were getting so many letters, people asking us, how are these animals doing? And why is the hippo with the tortoise? And why does the tortoise care about the hippo? And we had half a million people reading this blog every month and about 1,500 questions every day coming in. And Richard was very curious about this. Richard realized that one of the most powerful ways of getting interest in a conservation issue was through stories. Because this hippo, although it was on a private property, it didn't need any help. Thousands of people were asking us how they could make donations. And we didn't have any mechanism for people to make donations. And I told him how frustrated I was about this because people wanted to help, not because they thought we couldn't do it, but because they wanted to feel they had a say in the future of this baby hippo and its survival because he was a, is a tsunami victim. And that story, we did a book in the end and that story went viral. We, had, we reached over a million people through the book we had the book done in 27 languages. You know, it was really, really huge. And so he said to me, you know, can you come to Wildlife Direct and do this <laughs> for us, for the blogs? And that's where it started with the storytelling. And storytelling has continued to be the most powerful tool that we have to communicate our issues, generate interest, and I guess shine a light on people and issues. And Paula, why is storytelling through documentaries so important? Well, storytelling and film in particular, I think is the most powerful tool for conservation today. In the past, conservation education was done in the form of books and magazines and maybe classes, but you can't reach enough people. We produce wildlife documentaries because we need to reach the masses. You know, we need to reach all Kenyans. And so the TV series we produce are on free-to-air channels at a time when Everybody can watch them, and they are generally produced for that audience, for the general mass population. Very few people read long form anymore. Everybody is glued to their gadgets, and television in Africa is still very, very powerful. More than 80% of our people still watch TV. And so if we produce a show that is unique, fun, and very inspiring, then we can reach half the population of viewers in the whole country. So when we started making wildlife documentaries in 2015, we started working with television channels and helping them to actually create content. That had huge impact because for the first time, we had African channels producing wildlife content. That had never happened before. In fact, there was no wildlife content on any channel in the whole country. The, the powerful thing about TV is that, and ours was a talk show at the time, is that if you invite people to be on TV, they will always want to be on TV, especially if they're politicians. So what we did was we got politicians to come on the show and we asked them tough questions. And we asked them what they were going to do about certain situations and we'd hold them to account. So very, very powerful. What we saw was a, a new kind of accountability. So television being used to hold these guys to account on their environmental commitments. And then later on, I started my own TV show called Wildlife Warriors. And Wildlife Warriors was... A different kind of a show, we realized that the kind of content the television stations were beginning to show was the same stuff that we had been seeing in the West. So they're bringing programming from other countries. But it doesn't empower Africans to see other people telling our stories. We wanted to change that narrative. We wanted to see our biologists 
our engineers, our tour guides, our uh, rangers and, and people at the front line uh, helming these shows. And so we had we created Wildlife Warriors as a way to shine a light on people at the front line doing amazing work. And, and what this does is it makes the audience look at the story differently. Suddenly they see themselves. They start hearing somebody talk about their background, what their parents thought about them going into this strange career called conservation, um, how they avoided getting into trouble or how they felt when they saved the first rhino. You know, that's very powerful for kids watching these shows. Um, when I look back at the kind of comments I get when I walk on the streets of Nairobi, it's unbelievable. People stop me and they thank me for the show. And I sometimes ask them, so what, what was the most important thing that you saw? Or what, what are you thanking me for? It's usually things like, there's a segment about a woman who studies the vulture and guinea fowl. Her name is Brenda. And this is a very common bird. But most people don't know anything about it. So when they see Brenda, this 23-year-old expert from a village somewhere in the middle of nowhere, explaining it to Kenyan audiences, I think it's very empowering. People felt very moved and very interested in the birds and interested in Brenda. And I would say for young women in particular, validated. Yes, girls can be scientists too. Girls can go and work for the Max Planck Institute. It's not something that is just for foreign scientists which is what conservation has always been seen as. So we basically are smashing the perception of who should be a conservationist in Africa. It's always been other people from other places, usually from the global north, who are doing the work on the ground, recognized for it, getting rewarded for it. And here we are showcasing our own local people. And in every episode, we put children in as well. So there's always some little element where kids ask questions or they're on a boat with a scientist and they're going into the water and seeing an octopus for themselves. And we find that, especially when we have them speaking their own languages, so we'll, we will do subtitles if speak, people speak in their own local languages, we find that it's, it leaves our audiences feeling very validated and excited about the content. We're in Kenya talking to the wildlife conservationist Paula Kahumbu. Paula has highlighted the importance of harnessing conservation through storytelling, locally and globally. Conservation storytellers can influence pro-environmental values, which can shape everything from individual opinion to global strategy, simply by connecting us with little-known or underloved places and species. Without communication, there's no action. Scientists gather the data, but storytellers turn that information into a narrative, which can stay with you for a lifetime. And not only is Paula creating an abundance of incredible conservation stories, but she's also making waves by influencing a group of people who she thinks are vital for changing the current landscape of conservation. Children. I asked Paula why she believes young people are the key for making a difference in wildlife conservation. I used to think that we didn't have time to care about the next generation, but increasingly <laughs> I realise how vital it is. In this country, most of the children who finish primary school never go to high school. That means that they are already in the workforce at the age of just 13 or 14. Those are the young people whose lives and livelihoods are impacting on the environment. We need them to be part of the conservation success of this country. In addition, we also need to really create a generational change. Every time we educate and inspire people, it's great to have, like, our body of decision makers on board right now. But actually, this country has a huge gap. There's a huge gap of people who didn't get to do conservation in school. They didn't go into nature. They've never been to a national park. They don't understand why we should protect wildlife. Actually, they're really bought into the idea that we should all be selling things, buying things, and uh, living like we are in Dubai or in America or Europe. The most critical time of our lives when it comes to connection to nature, is childhood. And we know this from decades of research, that actually when children are introduced to nature at a very young age, they'll never forget that. It'll remain with them forever. But you try and get a teenager who was never introduced to nature as a child, try and get them interested in nature, it's very difficult. They just don't get it. And it's almost like languages or something. If you don't learn languages when you're young, it's very hard to learn them when you're older. 
So for us, it's really, really critical and vital that we bring children into conservation at a very young age. We inspire them. We give them a real sense of purpose and agency. So a lot of kids, especially here in Africa, have never felt like they have a say. They have to wait. We have very ageist societies. Young children are expected not to speak out. Creating a space here at the Wildlife Warriors Field Lab where children can speak out, where they're expected to experiment, to test things out, to ask questions, to, to lead when they're quite young. We have some of our leaders are 11 years old. To see the level of interest in young children, their ability to remember and make connections between the information and the surroundings, their lives, and their willingness to not just to share, but also to, to lead. So one of the things that we do is we bring children together actually in this very tent and we put them in a big circle and they get to uh, brainstorm what do they want for the field lab because we remind them this is their space, this is their protected area. And it was very interesting what they told us. The number one thing they wanted was a T-shirt that was identified them as wildlife warriors because they wanted to be ambassadors. So they got it very quickly. Some of these children were five years old. They wanted to be ambassadors. They wanted all the children in the surrounding areas to know that they were the ambassadors for wildlife warriors. And then they said they wanted a bus. They wanted a bus because they want to not only go to the national park, which is right there, but inaccessible to them. It's literally like a five-minute walk, but they're not allowed to go there on foot. But they also want to go to visit other schools because they feel it's not fair that they get all the benefit of this education and other schools aren't getting it. And they want to go and almost like evangelize to the other schools, which I thought was really, really adorable. And then they said they wanted to open up the space for their family and their parents in particular, because they wanted their community to understand what they're doing. They felt it was really important that what matters to them is known to everyone else around them. And finally, they said they wanted their own YouTube channel which really surprised me. So these are kids, most of whom had never held a camera. They said they wanted a YouTube channel. I asked them why, and they said, because we're learning so much and we want other children to know about it. And the best way is for us to make our own videos and share it with other children around. So there's such generosity in these children. They're so pure, it's really amazing. It doesn't take a lot. They come here, they walk in, some of them will walk for two hours to get here, and they will spend the day watering the plants, uh, going for a walk down to the river, helping out with various things, leading other children, watching the films. They're just incredible. It's really important also for my staff to see that the work that we're doing is making a difference, that we are witnessing children and people comment when they meet them. They meet the children from here and other children who come for the first time. So they can't believe the difference. They've never seen such confidence in young children who are... There's a couple of them who have started a business. So it's a conservation business. And they, they come out every time other people arrive, they come and they present their business idea. And they share their ideas with other children. Um, they're just, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really amazing to see how much can be done in a short amount of time uh, with children because they're so open, they're so willing to learn. It's really brilliant to hear about your work with Wildlife Warriors. I think it will be Really interesting to see how this has a long-lasting impact on wildlife conservation in the future. And on a slightly different note, in 2021, you were granted the Rodex National Geographic Explorer of the Year Award. This award is given to a member of the National Geographic Explorer community who shines a critical light on important issues, discoveries and challenges facing our planet and inspires the world to act on behalf of a more sustainable future. So... Paula, I wondered how this recognition has helped you and your work. Well, you know, when I was told that I was going to win the Rolex National Geographic Explorer of the Year Award, I was quite blown away. I hadn't ever imagined that I would be selected for that particular accolade because it's something that I think of Bob Ballard or, you know, these really famous people get that kind of award. So it was a really huge recognition for the work that I do. Rolex have been amazing. They have not only recognized the work, but they've constantly helped to keep the work in the media. They've introduced us to quite a few different international media so that we can have our stories shared. 
and also speaking platforms where I can go and you know talk about the work that we're doing. The collaboration with National Geographic and Rolex is is also really amazing because I'm now on the board of National Geographic and that's a big part of it is because of the Explorer of the Year. And it's the first time they've ever had an explorer on the board of the organization, which is huge. It means that I get to sit with these decision makers who affect the entire organization of National Geographic, which is amazing. And it affects all of the explorers and it allows me to bring concerns and ideas of the explorers to the board as well. So it's a, it's a really incredible organization and such a wonderful way to bring you know, the corporate world together with the society and support explorers from all around the world. So I'm not just doing my conservation work here in Kenya. It means my role is much bigger. I'm increasingly seen as somebody whose views are relatable all over the world. The Explorer of the Year Award definitely elevated my, I would say, my status globally and the level of interest that people placed on my work. I've been engaged in many international activities. You know, for example, I'm now involved in the X Prize. <laughs> you know, so I get I get to play a role in all kinds of different things, and a lot of people refer to, you know, that accolade. Oh, you're the Rolex National Geographic Explorer of the Year. Um, so it's a big deal, and even here in Kenya, people recognize it as a a huge thing. People say to me they never imagined that. National Geographic had explorers who were Africans. It's really, it's really eye-opening and, and uh, amazing. It means a lot more Africans are now applying for National Geographic awards and grants so that they can also um, enter into the competition for these kind of recognitions. And right now, to summarise, Paula, what do you think are the biggest challenges we face in wildlife conservation? Um, there are a lot of threats to wildlife and nature, which are caused by our behaviours, our practices around the world. A lot of it is ignorance, a lot of it is negligence, a lot of it is just plain, deliberate destruction. And I would say that the biggest challenge that I, I see is that people are not willing to step up and do something about it. I see it here in Kenya. I see problems every day, and I'm often asked to come and solve a problem and I always ask people, why aren't you doing it? Because there's a lot of criticism, especially here in Africa. If you stand up and speak out about something, you could be accused of being anti-development, anti-African, anti-communities, uh, putting animals before people. You know, you, So there's a lot of criticisms that might make some people not want to speak out in defense of nature. We forget there's plenty of people who fight for the rights of people. There are plenty of organizations that fight for the rights of underprivileged sectors of society. But uh, nature doesn't have a voice of its own. It needs people like us. But there's a lot of fear sometimes, and there's sometimes threats and intimidation. Or there's just plain laziness on the part of some people. They just think that, well, Paula will do it, or somebody like Paula should do it. And, and this is a problem that I think that lack of sense of responsibility to act when you see something is wrong is a big part of the problem. If you saw a child being harmed in the street, you wouldn't stand by and do nothing. So I don't understand why people stand by and do nothing when they see destruction of the environment, which happens all the time. So I do think a big part of the problem is it's in us, it's our lack of courage or lack of complacency. We don't take action. And that's why Wildlife Warriors is so important. We chose a name that was active. We've been told that we're a bit too militant. We shouldn't be telling children to be so militant. And we're like, no, we want children to know that they have agency, that they should fight for what is right. They should fight for what they believe in. And we don't mean be violent. We're not asking anybody to be violent. We're asking for people to stand up for what matters. But there are people all around the world who probably want to know how they can also help. And sometimes it's literally going to be about doing something in your neighborhood, you know, around you. I think it's really important that we, we see ourselves as a part of nature, not a part from nature. We are an integral part of nature and we have a very important duty to play. But sometimes the impact that we have, let's say we're in England and we're driving our vehicles, 
contributing to climate change, which is affecting us here in Kenya, where we have this three-year drought. So there's also a duty for everyone around the world to look at where can I help beyond my own country or beyond my neighborhood. And I do think it makes a big difference. Educating young people for your work is a huge part of your life and career. Are you hopeful that the next generation will affect change and preserve wildlife and habitats? Yeah. I have friends who always ask me, why do I care so much about kids? But I mean, part, part of the reason why I do what I do is because I just love it. <laughs> I love working with kids because it reminds me of what can be achieved. And it re-energizes me. Will these children all become conservationists? No, not all of them. But I do think that they will all have a sense of understanding in wherever they end up. If they end up as government engineers, they will have a sense of concern and care for the environment. I don't think anybody who has gone through any of our programs would just destroy nature without thinking. You know, I look at other countries at the incredible innovations that are being developed to merge development with environment. And I think that Africa is going to be the next new ground for expansion and development and explosion of ideas. This continent already has incredibly brilliant young people and crazy ideas. They just haven't had a chance to bring these things together. You know, if you look at everything to do with our alternative energy or transport systems, it's all borrowed from outside. There's very little that is ours that we've brought from ourselves. Maybe that will change. I think that getting these children into conservation early, teaching them a lot, and then they go through the traditional education system, I think what we'll see is these children will more likely go to high school and university than children who never came through these programs. I think we've given children a sense of purpose and a real interest in further education. For two reasons, I think that this will make a huge difference. First, we are creating knowledge and add new attitudes or changed attitudes and maybe even behaviours. But secondly, we're creating new leaders. These children are not going to be satisfied with just being uh, very junior people in various organisations. I can see it already. I've talked to children and I've asked them what schools they want to go to when they finish primary school. So they're, they're only 12, 13 years old now. They want to go to the top school in the entire country. That's their target. The aspirations are huge. That wasn't there a year ago. So having greater aspirations and ambition means that we are going to see new kind of leadership. It's going to come from a part of the country that is not traditionally known for this kind of leadership. And if we can take this to scale, if we can get this program into every school in the country, if we can get it into the education system of the country, I think that will transform the results, you know, for not just for this country, but actually across the continent. So I think that if we get it right here, it'll be easy for us to take it to scale across other countries. That's really my big dream. It's all experimental still. We're, we're designing programs. We're testing them out with these children. We're seeing what works and what doesn't work. And when we go to scale, I want to go to scale across the whole continent. So if there was a sort of core message or feeling you hope to evoke from people who hear your message, what would that be? I really hope that everyone who listens to this podcast gets a sense of how much can be achieved in a short space of time when it's done the right way. We've been operating the Field Lab only for a year and over 3,000 children have come through here. And the reason why this is such a big success is because we're locals, we understand this place, we speak the local languages, we're trusted by the local communities. And we can engage our government and bring this program into schools throughout this part of the country. A lot of donors and supporters from around the world think that the way that they're going to help in Africa is to come over here themselves and start their own initiatives. But we see so many of these happening and they start and they blink out and they start and they blink out. They create a lot of expectation. They sometimes bring ideas that are very foreign, that aren't relatable to young people from these areas. And I hope that people listening will see that actually the most effective way to send your support is actually to those grassroots organizations that are already on the ground. They're already committed people. They're already doing amazing stuff. They just need more help. 
And in that way, we can actually drive a much bigger impact on the ground. I'm really excited about the possibilities. I know that we are only just scratching the surface here. We have 30 acres of land and we haven't even started building our center yet, but we've already achieved so much. We have so many young people from the universities who want to come and work with us and be advisors and mentors and interns and volunteers. The opportunities are massive, but we don't have the funding yet. So we're still looking for support. So if anybody out there wants to help to develop the Wildlife Warriors Field Lab here in Kenya, we're definitely interested in hearing from you. So Paul, I'm going to finish on a incredibly big question, which is how hopeful are you for the future of our planet and our people? Uh, I think that there are loads of things that we will regret not doing. There are species which we're going to lose, like the northern white rhino. And we're going to learn some very painful lessons over the next 10 or 15 years. I think this is going to be the most painful decade for humanity. But I am hopeful because I think that that pain is going to translate into a real sense of commitment from many people. Maybe the technological age has for the first time allowed us to share knowledge and information and connect people to nature in a way that was never possible before. We did a VR session here with children, for example, and they flew on the back of bald eagles somewhere in America. And for the children at first, freaked them out, you know, they were like <laughs> up in the sky. And then all of a sudden it was, how amazing. I'm somewhere in America. I'm flying on the back of a bald eagle. That kind of connectedness was not possible five years ago. And today we can take children anywhere in the world using technology. Imagine the possibilities of turning that interest and knowledge into action, into concern, into empathy. We can, we can do a lot more. I think we have phenomenal opportunities ahead of us. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, wildlife conservationist, Paula Kahumbu. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce. The production coordinator is Oliver Adamson and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on the Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by the Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.